The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees, and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. It's fan takeover today, my friends. Yes, that's a thing that can happen. Andrea Sexton Dumas has been listening to the Numinous podcast since the very beginning, way back in 2014. I didn't know her then. And over the years, she's joined me in my signature program, the Numinous School, um, participated in my courses and workshops, and eventually became a member of the Threshold community that I co-hosted with Holly Trular. She has become a dear and trusted friend over the years. And now... I am not a podcast listener myself, per se. I know. It's like the mechanic whose car is on blocks in their yard. I, I, who, I don't have a car. I don't, I'm not a bus rider. I don't know when people are listening to podcasts. And I guess because I talk to people pretty much all day, all the time, when I'm not doing that, I just like silence. But I know that Andrea is a podcast listener and has discerning taste, if I do say so myself. And so some of the feedback I receive from my podcast guests is that I ask good questions, that they're, they're well-researched and knowledgeable questions and unlike what they very often get uh, from other podcasts and media. Um, and I think primarily that's because I, I only have people on the show whose work or whose perspective like genuinely piques my interest as a guest. So when Andrea suggested to me, just as a friend, that I ought to do a show on the backstory of my book, The Spirited Kitchen, and the process of bringing it to life, I asked her, well, which podcast hosts ask really good questions? Like, which ones are good? And also, what questions do you think listeners want me to answer? Because we could put that in, in like my press kit. Like, here's questions Carmen could answer. Anyway, Andrea, in her very resourceful and signature industrious way created a short list of podcasts but beyond that she sent a list a rather long list actually of questions she would want someone to ask me as a longtime listener of the show and i loved the questions so much that i asked andrea if she would be willing to come on the show and take over as host andrea is a very humble sometimes quiet maybe like a little bit shy kind of person sometimes at first anyway but she agreed and i'm so pleased i'm so honored and flattered that she said yes andrea sexton dumas is a storyteller an animist and an end-of-life doula her practices of gardening cooking and sacred devotion have been influenced by her grandmother and other matriarchs she's an apprentice to grief and love and hosts a semi-regular candle hour which is an online grief vigil that features gospel music. She lives on Checheno and Karkin-speaking Ohlone land as the East Bay of the Oakland-San Francisco Bay Area. I'm very pleased to extend a warm, warm welcome to Andrea, our guest host for this episode. What identities do you lead with? This question gets me misty-eyed. Mm. I lead as a sensitive soul, mm. and that 
colors every other aspect of my humanity. I'm a daughter and a granddaughter, a wife, an auntie, a sister. I am a black mixed race woman, cis female. I am a storyteller, a gardener, mm. a good cook. <laughs> uh, and I am, I am one who entertains guidance from spirit. And those are the are those are the identities that I lead with. Hmm. Hmm. I love that. If if I if somebody were to say like, "Oh, Andrea, what's she like?" I I would I would say those things too. I'd be like, "Oh, she's a very sensitive soul. She's like always tracking everything in the room. She's like super compassionate. She's very heart led. She's very community oriented. She's like tracking a ton of relationships all the time and giving like." lots of wide birth and holding big space and she's very intuitive and she communes with the spirits and she lets spirit move through her she's also a hypnotherapist that's right you don't lead with that I don't lead with that no but we have that in common <laughs> we do yes mm -hmm. we do. and you are a, a, like not just a good cook but I would say like people are familiar with that um book or that movie, um, like water for chocolate. Yes. You're like a, you pour <laughs> emotion into your food and stories. And, and I, yeah, I really appreciate that about you, that you're so present mm -hmm. and, and you offer so much love and care in that way. Yes. Thank you. Mm. You don't lead with this, but you're also a long time listener of the Newman's podcast. Yes. yes. Yeah. Very long time. <laughs> I think, I think, the first year is when I started listening and I had to kind of go back and yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. The podcast has been uh, a friend to me. I'm just going to throw it over to you. You are now the host of the Numinous podcast and I am the guest. So right. um, take it away, Andrea. You can, I'm letting you, you're, you're at the helm. All right, let's go. Thank you for sharing your microphone with me, Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I also just want to start by saying thank you for writing this book. Oh, yeah, thank you for your labor and your effort and your recipes and your magic. Mm -hmm. I know it's been a labor of love and you know, you've created something that's going to be around a really long time. Mm -hmm. So just thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. That's okay. Now I feel emotional. <laughs> now I'm misty already. <laughs> yeah, that's my goal is I, I wanted to write a book that would be around for certainly for my child. And I wanted a legacy piece that was like me reaching with all my heart through the pages mm -hmm. to his heart. And, um, and at the same time, I wanted to create something that people would pull off the shelf and not know if it was published in 2022 or 1975, mm -hmm. or, you know, I wanted something that sort of felt classic. So how would you describe the spirited kitchen in terms of its own personhood? Who is this book? What is its personality like? Well, I guess I think about it in comparison to me or maybe contrast. So this book is more mature than I am. <laughs> this book is like more well-rounded, more refined, more established. You know, this, this book is more rooted and grounded in lineage um, and, and earth-based practice than even I am. Like, I, I feel like I needed to live up to 
what I was trying to share in the Mm. book for sure. Um, or what the book was trying to share with me. Um, it was really, this is a book that is, um, both very nurturing, um, and also firm, you know, it's like a firm auntie or matron (laughs) who's like, this is, there's a way that we do things. (laughs) This is, this is the way it's what the Gales would call the fitness of things. It's like, Mm -hmm. this is, this book is about the fitness of things. And my fitness not may not be the same as yours. What works for me may not be what works for you, but there is a, a manner of approach Mm -hmm. that is really important. So it's almost like it's give it, it, it bears itself with more elegance and um, has better etiquette than I have <laughs> in many ways. But I see, I, I, I see it as um, a good model for me of how I want to be. So I, I would definitely, if I were to personify the book, um, they're older than I am. They are, they have their own space and home that they've created. They've spent many decades mm. um, building up the soil is really good. The systems are really, um, you know, it's like it has this ecosystem and biodiversity that is really rich and nourishing. You kind of feel like you're sitting at the roots of, of big trees. Mm. Mm. Oh, my Virgo moon is like, yes. <laughs> the Virgos are going to oh. love it. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Let me ask you your famous ending question. What is the book's relationship to grief and rage? Yeah, it has tempered that over time. So uh, once again, it's like, it's better integrated than I am. (laughs) It's more well-refined. It carries it. There's a passion for um, righteous outrage and like there's a passion for justice. And um, it's definitely... Yeah, it's more tempered um, mm. uh, than than I am for sure when it comes to uh, yeah passion for justice and equity. Um, as far as grief goes, it's a very gentle uh, way of holding grief, and it's not asking too much of people. It's not demanding too much, but it's also not shirking or shunning. It's not shying away from the griefs of the world for sure. Mm-hmm. And it and it states the griefs in a very clear-eyed, facing forward, matter of fact kind of way. Like this is not a debate. You know, oh, we're making corn dollies. Let's talk about globalization and sit with the grief of that. <laughs> Why is it easier to um, uh, find? certain kinds of foods in your region than others? Why is it difficult to access, um, you know, uh, land? Those Mm. kinds of things are there. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also, like I said, it's not demanding that if you, if you don't um, immerse yourself in the griefs, then you are somehow shirking your responsibility as a, Mm. a person living, you know, a privileged life in the Western world or that sort of thing. It's not, it's not going to like drag you through it, but it's there all the time. Yeah. 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 And just to pull on that thread a little bit, as a collapse aware person, what has it meant to you to release a cookbook coming out of two plus years of pandemic, um, being unable to gather safely indoors for such a long time? And, and how has this experience changed your relationship to eating and hosting and ingestion behaviors? 
Mm, yeah, ingestion behaviors. Yeah, relating that to contact nutrition and how we attach through foods. So I'm kind of, it sort of depends on the day, it depends on the season. I've definitely, I've been on a journey for a couple of years now with this. Um, as a collapse aware person, there are some days where I'm like, this is so useless. Like, why am I putting something out in the world that is like so superficial? Mm -hmm. I definitely have those feelings. I definitely have feelings sometimes of like, it's too little, it's too late. Um, and is this even important? That That's definitely like kind of my Achilles heel the whole time along was I, I need to really scale it down to, well, what is important here is I'm communicating to my beloveds what is important here is this is like a legacy piece for all of those who feel like me, that there is something inherently um, worthwhile about connecting with our human spirit and food affirms life. Mm. And what we know neuroscience is proving now is food affirms relationships. Mm -hmm. What is my relationship to the land that I'm on? What's my relationship to the people I'm sitting with and ingesting with? What, what does it mean for my attachment behaviors if I got fed or not? Mm. You know, these things are actually, again, it's an ecosystem of things. And so on other days, <laughs> I'm like, nope, this is going to be very important. And maybe not for my peers and maybe not even for my children's peers, my child's peers, but, but for those in the future who are, um, who have lost some things and have lost, um, you know, I'll miss the internet when it's gone. <laughs> so yeah. it'll be like, this will be a great piece. Um, because it's, it's, a it's not filling in the blanks of lineages because there is no pristine prior tradition. There is no way to know what ancestors did a hundred or a thousand years ago. Exactly. Very much of what they did was so mundane of how yeah. they sat together at the table that they didn't even think to write it down. Right. Um, and this is what I'm trying to do is say, well, here is a manner of approach. Here are some methods. Here's a kind of framework you can use to try to discern what would we do in the here and now? How can we make do with what have? Um, how do we know what's important that we want to ritualize? You know, how do we attune to that? And what are the, the key moments that we want to lift up? And I, I see that as a collapse skill the ability to attune and really sift, you know, and like, let's say separate the wheat from the chaff and like, just like really thresh something and say, what is the most important thing here? And what, and there's nothing that's waste. So there, we're going to do other things with what's left over, but what is it that we need to hold sacred in order to make it through to another day? Pandemic, I think, helped us remember like, oh, <laughs> food is soothing. Food is yeah. medicine. Food fills me with a sense of connection. Um, and when we're not gathering in person, um, there, that is the question is like, how do we, can we still find soothing in that? And so, and I get this question a lot in my attachment courses from people who are living alone, who are very isolated. Like I haven't been to a restaurant in three years. I'm not even outside. Like that's not a thing that I'm doing. Um, and so for some people we're talking about 
how do we scan for safeness when we're eating and drinking so that we are doing it in connection? Mm-hmm. And hey, if you're a real plant person, people are like literally moving their plants to the table <laughs> and just like looking at them with mm. like love and admiration as they're eating and drinking, or they're like putting um, hummingbird feeders outside the window and sort of timing it for when the birds are there and we're, they're drinking, I'm drinking tea, oh, that kind of thing. God. They're like including their animals in, you know, like eating in similar times instead of just whatever free feeding, whatever it is, you know? So I think as a collapse where person, I, I struggle sometimes because I see a lot of <laughs> human activities futile. I'm like, ah, I wish I was doing other things right now that feel more helpful. Um, and at the same time, when I bring it back down to the, like my personal scale, mm-hmm. the quality of my life, the quality of my humanness has been made. So I've always been like a use the good dishes every day kind of person. Cause we didn't like have good dishes growing up. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I want, I want to be that person. Break out the China, break out the China, <laughs> use my grandma's stuff. Like whenever I can, it doesn't have to be like a quote unquote special occasion. Every day is a special occasion. And, um, definitely being able to share that where I'm like, oh, we're celebrating Equinox um, is is really important to me. But one of the ways that I'm doing it is like, we're one of those households that doesn't have curtains. And our, our front porch is like 15 feet from the sidewalk. So like we've got a huge front window. My main altar in my home faces the street. So like anybody walking by your house is like, when is all this wheat stuff? And what is all this like regalia? Like, you know, and I've had people cross, you know, or walking down the street, say to my husband, who's gardening out there, like, what is, what is this in the living room? And he'll say, oh, that's my wife's spiritual practice. And they're like, oh, she's religious. And he's like, no, but it's the spiritual practice. She honors the seasons every six weeks. And they're like, oh, wow, it's so beautiful. You know, like, and our table is right there too. So they see us eating with candles and, you know, wine and all that kind of stuff. So we're still in a little pandemic bubble, like really. And if I'm going to, spend my um, COVID risk budget on eating with other people. We're very careful and it's like very um, uh, orchestrated, but um, even just making everyday meals from, you know, bread we're making or honoring like, oh, we got fresh fish from, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the docks, like that feels like sacred spiritual practice and is very sustaining, um, even though I miss some of the larger celebrations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. I can, I can feel you holding all of that, mm. all of it. And I do just have to say one of the things that really um, tickled me in the beginning of COVID when things were so scary and so challenging and so unknown is that everyone low-key knew what to do. Yeah. Right. Like all the seeds were gone. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, I need to grow. Herbs. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know? yeah. Everyone all of a sudden is a plant mom. Yeah. You know, everyone's learning how to bake bread. And so it's like, oh, this is interesting that like somewhere in your gut, you knew what needed totally. to be done. Totally. And we're scanning for like, oh, what about the old people down the way? Like, right. I-, I wonder if they're in or, oh, you know, like we have a family on our street. They don't speak English. It's like, oh, well, I know someone else who speaks Mandarin. I wonder if we could just check on them. Do they need us? You know, like we all did know what to do. And we kind of gently, I think, mobilized around that. And it was, I miss it. 
I'm sorry to say, but I'm like, I miss early pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) Not the bad parts, obviously, but I I miss the spirit of, and again, as a collapseware person, I mean, not to take this totally sideways, my team is going to be like, Carmen, maybe not so early in the interviews, but, but I mean, there, there is an aspect of that, um, kind of early pandemic energy of, um, like I, I've always said that I hope when there are large cataclysmic collapse events, they are environmental, not sociopolitical. Mm. And so like pandemic kind of comes under that because it's, there are certain kinds of cataclysmic collapse events that are uniting their unity experiences. We're all going through the same thing. And then there are some that are, you know, legit, you know, we're all sick of the word divisive, but like there are some that legitimately um, other, other humans, you know, the other rising and they pit Mm -hmm. us against each other. And like, that is not the collapse I'm hoping for. Yeah. 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 Yeah, True that. True that. (laughs) We will certainly have more opportunities to commune with our neighbors in the coming decades. We will. We will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, as a known ritualist, speaking of the rituals Me? of eating, are you you? Doing, okay, okay, oh, you exactly. I'm like, are we you. talking about me? <laughs> okay. okay, absolutely. Okay, uh, you know, just I mean, I can I can see you and Ruben just sitting, you know, through your window, lighting the candles, you know eating together, sharing your day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, did you already have any writing rituals or did you develop any through the course of writing your manuscript? Um, so I can like, so what's happening right now, Andrea, I'll tell you, is like part of me is leaving my body. It's like <laughs> vacating Uh-oh. the room. Just because even like talking about writing feels wrong somehow because I'm not a writer. I'm an author. I've, mm-hmm. I've published a book, but like writer is not an identity I have. There were rituals though that were not so much about the writing, but they were about um, invocation and like, hoping for blessings from the greater Mm. powers so there are there's evidence of it everywhere like if taped to the back of my desktop screen is a piece of paper that has images of mercury and lilith and like all of these deities you know are like all there and it's like right behind my screen so as if they're like my counsel Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know looking at me so there were there were um larger rituals of containing so like um I I I really doubled down on like propitiating the gods of the week so Mm. like going to my altar and making a moon offering on Mondays and you know like again Wednesday's really important for um uh, making offerings to Mercury and Mm. just having like a little tiny thing you know just a, a candle a prayer a little piece of food um, an herb, a flower on Fridays, like those kinds of things, chocolates that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And so, and, and I, you know, um, yeah, there, there were just a few different things that was like, oh, this is a really important time, or this is me just like putting myself, like surrendering myself at the altar and saying, like, please, I, I, I'm trying to be good. <laughs> please like just tell me what to do and tell me what to say um and make it so that I don't like embarrass 
myself or anybody else that, mm. you know, so it, was, it was a very humbling experience. And, and like I said, I like doubled down and, I, and I'm trying to be also, I tried to be aware of when it started to become like superstitious. Like I was just like being right. gripped with self-doubt and was like, this is not the posture I want to like bring into the work. So um, yeah, there was like a lot of somatic work mm-hmm. doing like therapeutic tremoring beforehand sometimes if I was feeling particularly um stuck in an area or just there were just some things that felt kind of big to be saying or like taking on as something I was allowed to talk about Mm. Mm -hmm. wow wow well and I do just want to push back like on a personal note you write Instagram posts I do You've written blogs. <laughs> uh huh. So just in the very, you know, in the essence of the word, you are a writer. Every, we all write things. I guess so. I guess like technically, yes. But of <laughs> course, to me, I just feel like I'm just talking. I'm just talking through the keyboard. I'm just talking. Right. And I guess that's what every writer does. But I, I know real writers. I know real writers. And there's just, there is, I, there is not a day. I will never. I say right now, <laughs> guaranteed, writer is not an identity I'm going to claim um, so long as there are like real writers in the world. I just, I, there's no way. Fair enough. I yeah. will just say this one last thing. I've learned this the hard way. My mom used to tell me all the time, never say never. Oh, yeah. That was unwise. <laughs> that was unwise. Yeah. Thank you for that reminder. It's true. That's Who knows? Like- I could get better, right? I could get better. This is the thing. I knew from the beginning that I was like, um, I said this on a different podcast where I talk about, um, as reclines quote about like your ambition at first will always outreach your talent and your Mm. capacity. And that'll like, that's why you hate your own work. (laughs) So you're like, not as good as you, as you want to be. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so And so you have to produce a ton of work. And I was like, okay, this is going to be my first book and it'll just not be as good as my second or my third book, but I'm trying to get, I'm trying to become good. And so maybe someday I will be like, oh yes, I am a writer, but I haven't written the book that would um, make me claim that. No, it doesn't make me feel like that. I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, like, it's good. (laughs) It's good. It's like, it's good to read. It's good writing, I think. I don't know. I, I followed Roxane Gay's advice, right? It's like, check your opening lines, your opening paragraphs, your opening chapters, are they interesting? Mm. <laughs> and then have I said everything I want to say? That's mm. what Roxanne Gay says to do. And I did that. And I'm like, I definitely didn't say everything I want to say, but I said as much as the editors would let me. So, um, but it's good. Like it's good enough, but there you yeah, go. <laughs> not enough for me to like say, oh yeah, like my mentor, Roxanne Gay, I'm a writer. Like we're my, she's <laughs> not my mentor. I make it sound like I know her. I don't. She said my name once, but that's right. Yeah, hey, she, claim it. I claim it. Yeah, <laughs> claim she knows it. my name. That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> well, with all of that said, how has the process of authoring a book changed you? It was very confronting, Andrea. It was very confronting. I didn't realize that it was going to bring up the mother wound so much. I didn't realize it was going to bring up, um, yeah, like I, I, I'm a confident person. I've done tons of therapy over a long period of time. I've done a lot of trauma work, somatic work. I like myself. I believe in myself, but 
writing the book, I really felt confronted with um, challenges to my, my feelings of, of being adequate, you know? So um, I think through this process, I, I got to necessary deeper levels of mm-hmm. acceptance of myself and releasing of perfectionism. I think I'm much closer to the advice I give other people you know, like, I think I'm doing a much better job after this of like, yeah, self-compassion and, um, you know, just like being kind of realistic with myself and not so hard on myself. So, um, the, the process of authoring has, has also the, like, so the flip side of that is, is, um, it's just starting to dawn on me like, oh, wow, I did a thing. I did a thing that took multiple years of focus and vision and intention and like countless hours of execution and so much collaboration. There's so much you don't control in this process and so much you, you just can't, it just nothing's going to be perfect or exactly what you want or whatever. And so that level of, um, like self-regulation and maturity and focus and desire is, um, you know, prove something to me about what I can do. Mm. Yeah. That feels so empowering to hear you say that. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And you've kind of have already mentioned it, but I'm just wondering if you wanted to say anything else about your more than human allies during the writing, the uh, photographing, the editing, or even human support. It sounds like it took a village. Oh, gosh, it really did. Well, okay, so starting at the beginning, I will say this, an interesting thing happened. Hestia was really pressing on me for a long time. And, you know, she's not a deity that is, she doesn't have a lot of written stories. And I believe that it's because she's the personification of fire itself. I think that's why we don't hear stories of Hestia walking out on the landscape, you know, going for a walk with Zeus or whatever. It's because she is fire and they develop stories about fire, about sovereignty, about um, sanctuary, about, um, uh, you know, the, 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 soul nourishment provided by a hearth and so learning about her directly and then starting to research a bit more and like kind of so that was really pressing on me and really felt significant Um, and so Hestia also I I identify with uh, you know Vesta Mm -hmm. so same deity but like hundreds of years later from the Romans, but the same deity. And I was born under three asteroids. Um, So Lilith, Athena, and Vesta. And so getting a deeper relationship, I already had a pre-existing relationship with Lilith and was like, look, babe, we're going to go on this trip and we're going to like bring your um, sense of justice and you're like got to do it my way you're going to come and do this with me we're going to partner with um, Athena who prior to the patriarchal overlay you know was was very much known not as the goddess of war but as of craft mm. and so everything to do with craftsmanship and making things and making things to last I was like okay we're going to work together but um, Vesta Hestia was was not one that I had identified with as much, but it was like, okay, my friends, here's my triple 
um, goddess kind of archetypes I'm working with. And she made herself known in dreams. And I had this like incredible experience where I was like floating. We go to this place um, in our watershed. Uh, it's called the Souk Potholes because the, the river um, of the watershed goes over the rocks and some of them have these like deep holes in them. So it's like, it's, it's like it suddenly just has a straight-sided eight foot deep you know, kind of puddle you can just like jump into. Yeah. But there's these beautiful areas. There's this one that it's almost like there's this pond, a gentle mm -hmm. pond. And we go there in the summers and um, it's like a nice safe place in the woods that my, my son's comfortable um, going. And so we go swimming there and I was just floating there. And actually my best friend, Patricia was there at the time. We we're on like a girlfriend's weekend. She was on the shore and I was floating in the river and the sun, it was in the summer. The sun was like beating on my heart space. Mm. And you know, when you're in the water and you can hear your own breath and you can hear your own heart. Yeah. And suddenly it was like, I had the heartbeat and the breath of the goddess. Like, absolutely. I was like in the womb. I was in the womb waters of the goddess and it felt like, the water was rippling with my heart and, and it, it was just absolutely, uh, just felt like a cosmic experience. It was a peak yeah. experience, a numinous experience. And, um, when I opened my eyes, I just felt like she'd come into me and that she was like, okay, <laughs> we're, we're going to complete this and it's going to be beautiful and you have to stop worrying that you're going to have an ugly baby that was what I was calling mm. it I was like when if I have an ugly baby um mm. and she was just like stop that now mm. like <laughs> she was like mm. nope we're not doing that anymore <laughs> and then I stopped I was like yeah this is it's going to be good I believe in there this and I'm going to stop denigrating that the other great collaboration in the human realm is was of course um Stephanie Ray Hall, my mm -hmm. dear friend who took all of the photos. And we did 30 photo shoots in 12 months. Wow. We did more than that in total because she'd also been photographing my in-home workshops for some time. And so we had we have photos in the book from like actually Wheel of the Year events that are like a couple of years older. <laughs> like they mm -hmm. go back to like 2017 or something, but they're just kind of woven in. And um, she is such an artist and yet so exacting. I don't actually know what her Virgo placement is. I should ask, I should, mm -hmm. but because <laughs> she is, she goes from like keeping the whole big vision to also just like, you know, tuck your chin in or like, you look this way. Like she just gives you that like very precise. She, she's like a choreographer. She's just giving me very precise instruction. And I trust her aesthetic and her work ethic. And she just knew like, she, she has a very strong sense also of the fitness of things. And I've never had such a um, trusting collaboration with another mm -hmm. creative person. It was just, it, it was, it was wonderful. And I love her so much. And I, and it just wouldn't have been this book without her. And um, yeah, it was like, absolutely a total collaboration. Mm, that sounds really wonderful. Yeah, it was such I a rare like thing. I'm like, oh, wow, do other people have this experience when they're like no. making creative work? <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is amazing. I, it was like so genuine, mm -hmm. just the trust and the love and the fun and the friendship. And of course, we spent the whole time like talking about our kids, talking about our marriages, talking about all that stuff. So we, yeah. you, you know, and like griefs and losses and bereavement and conflicts and and so we're doing all this stuff but we also were both like and now the work 
we're bringing forward one of the biggest works of our lives and nothing. She was just like, nope, these people are not reading the room, Carmen. You have to focus. She would be like my coach. She's like, okay, now we're working. We're going to get the shot. I was like, okay. So yeah, she was like, nope, other people aren't understanding what you're doing here. You need to now. Yes, we've, we've like talked about that, but like, yeah, she helped me not feel guilty about the focus I was putting into the project. And um, that was really useful because mm-hmm. you can't bring forward a project like this and not have your relationships um, impacted. You just can't, yeah. you really can't. And it definitely impacted um, not it, it, like not the closest relationships like my son and I that that bond super strong Ruben totally gets it but it was it's been hard with um friends clients that kind of thing Mm -hmm. where it's like the quality of my presence isn't what it needs to be Mm -hmm. um so not only is it like it takes a village but also the village suffer the impacts when Mm -hmm. you're a creative person who's like singularly focused on something yeah Mm -hmm. that's that was my reality anyway I I hope to do it better in the second and third books You know, you you kind of mentioned your dreams, and I really want to come back to that. I'm so curious about how this book has influenced your dream time. How did your dream time influence the book? Mm. I'm so curious. Well, I I did have in the beginning before I actually got the book deal, I did have some dreams that were very the only kind of like the texture I would give them is ancestral where it's like, oh, this feels like a way back ancestor, but they're, they weren't quite presenting themselves exactly the way, like when I do trance journey, I'm like, oh yeah, that's granny Ray. She's like 1500 years old. <laughs> I know when she's from, you know, like I, but I know her as an ancestor, this was a little different. And they, they came to me with these masks on mm. that. And so that was like a strange thing there, but it was like, oh, this is like, they, they, they felt like emissaries from a different kind of realm and a more, I don't know how I would put it, but like mystical kind of realm. Whereas like my ancestors, when I'm doing ancestral work and I'm, I'm like doing reverence or veneration with them, they're very earthy. They're like, yeah, this is a person who was probably a picked or something, you know, like I'm like, yep, I, I get a sense of the landscape. Whereas these people had different kind of I don't know, like ritual ways of being and things that just, you know, I don't know, there's no maybe archaeological record of them. Um, And they kind of like would mysteriously show up and be like beckoning and like kind of making me want to follow them through the woods or go further. And then they would kind of disappear. But what would result is usually like a fire and some meat or something like that. Like it was like, oh, there's food here, but it was like the most basic. It wasn't like, oh, now I'm coming, you know, I'm having this predictive dream that I'm going to have a recipe of whatever, but there would be something very earthy there, but it would always just kind of be like me alone, fire, meat, you know, no one else there. So, so it wasn't, it was very mysterious and it all had the sense of come, come to the hearth fire, come to come nourish yourself, come get some sustenance and make it Mm. like, make it sustenance, you know, it's gotta Mm. like kind of fill you up. Um, and, and it was right around that time that I was like, 
I'd, I'd been putting my proposal together. I'd been putting the kind of feelers out there with an agent. And then it kind of shifted. Like, I think I probably had dreams like that two or three times over the course of like six weeks or so. Mm-hmm. And it was also in the fall, which is a very like highly potent time for me. It's like my birthday's in the fall. It's all and it's all these different things, but it did. I did recognize it as like that. I feel like whatever it is I'm trying to do in my life, I'm being egged on and I'm being given food when I get mm. there. Not a lot else. Not a, don't know how it's coming. There's just like no wise guidance. There was no elder at the threshold, but it is, it, it felt like yes signals. Um, and then once I got my agent, got my um, contract and started writing, then it was just anxiety dreams all the way down. Fuck. It's still happening okay. to this day. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh, no. Yeah. My most recent one was like, yeah, looking for stuff and then like in a car and um, it driving over in this like beautiful wooded area. And then suddenly just like going over a cliff in a car into the river and that feeling, you know, when you're falling in your dream and it was just like, this is happening. So um, I, yeah, my dream life since then hasn't been great. There's been a lot of like bolting up out of bed at 4am and being like, Oh my God, did that correction get made? Did they change that from Celsius to Fahrenheit? Just like editing. Oh my God, what a nightmare, Andrea. Yeah. My dream life has been a nightmare since the editing process began. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot wait for it to just be out, see what the mistakes are. I still haven't seen the hard copy yet, but I want to see what, where the errors are land them, locate them, do my somatic processing around it, and then just like carry on and yes. sleep like a baby after that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh <laughs> Thanks God. for asking. Sorry <laughs> for everybody who's like super anxious now. Feel your arms, feel That's your right. legs. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Locate the exit. Yeah. Doors and windows, everybody. <laughs> somatic tracking here. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Well, you know, speaking of your astrology sign, I mean, how neat is it, right? That your book is being released just days after your birthday, you know, on the 31st. Was there any memorable or poignant astrology during the writing and editing process? I mean, is it still continuing? Oh my gosh. Let me tell you. (laughs) So I am the luckiest gal because my astrologer, so her mom had come to one of my Wheel of the Year events, a Yuletide event a couple of years ago, I guess, because my astrologer is from my same hometown. Her mom still lives here and she might follow me on Instagram or something like that. Somehow she knew, oh, Carmen is doing this thing. Mom, you should go. So I didn't know who this was, but she ended up being like our elder that night. And so we had this like lovely sort of connection. I guess her mom must have told her about it. It was like, yeah, she had this like giant tree and it was a big feast. We did this ritual and it was just really lovely to have these sort of two like matriarchal aged women like show up, but I don't know them. They don't know me, but it's like, come into my home. We're going to have a wheel of the year event. That's what I loved about doing the in-person ones was like, you're going to come to my living room. We're going to eat food. We're going to do ritual and we're just going to be community for a night you know? So that was lovely. Then I, I learned that the connection is, oh, my, my daughter is on your newsletter and she's an astrologer. And so then I realized I meet, it's Eliza Robertson of Cosmic Tonic. Yeah. If people don't know the Cosmic Tonic podcast, go look it up. And Eliza is a real writer. When I say I know real writers, I know like award-winning Canadian prize winning Mm. writers. She is a real writer. 
And now she actually also writes the Chani app. So if people like Chani Nicholas, if that's your astrologer and you like the app and you like your newsletter, that's Eliza. So Eliza is my astrologer. And for the last several years, she's done my electional astrology of like, when would be a good time? And mm. so I, that's like, first thing, once I decided, okay, I'm going to write a, a book proposal, Eliza, can you give me the <laughs> transit for the next little while? When would be a good time to like find an agent, find, uh, you know, pitch the book, all that stuff. So everything has wow. been timed to the minute. So the email that I sent to the person that became my agent was sent at like 348 on a Thursday afternoon. It was scheduled for that time. It was like pre-written and scheduled and like, boom, it went out. I got this unicorn, amazing agent. Same thing with like, here's a good time for pitching. I like got my manuscript ready. There's a ton I can't control about that. But I said to my agent, this would be the best window for you to send my manuscript out. Got an excellent publisher. Yeah. So I'm I give all of that over to Eliza. So there were like so many significant dates that I like, you know, and, and there were times too, where she would say, this is kind of like a crappy time, even though it's like the best time or you have a deadline for your editor or something like that. Maybe this would be a good time to do some, um, uh, remedial magic. So she would suggest like, okay, it's not a great time. So you should propitiate, you should give some gifts to Mercury or you should give some gifts to Thor or you should like whatever it was. And I'd be like, absolutely, I am on it. So yes, I, this is one of the reasons why I was like, so on top of my daily altar time and like welcoming in and just not to ask for stuff, but just to give myself Mm -hmm. and to like, devote myself to them and say like, thank you for your blessings. (laughs) And and so Eliza has helped the whole way. I highly recommend electional astrology for like any, and I've done that for years for my business, but for my book, it was definitely like, Hey, how can I, who's with me in the next couple of years and, and what's positive? What can I, what can I work with? When should I just surrender and let go? And you know, there are just times where like, you can't push a string. If a thing's not going to go, it's not going to go. And that's really nice to have that information. And I don't mm-hmm. think it's because I'm doing something wrong. Yeah. Wow. Well, everyone write it down, make an appointment with Eliza. Eliza, Eliza <laughs> Robertson. I, she is so booked up because I've sent like so many people to her, but if you know, find a good, there's also Jasmine and right. Kestrel who are part of their, they, they collaborate as three astrologers, all That's with great right. gifts. And I've had birthday readings with them as well, um, where we do Jasmine and Eliza will do tarot and your astrology. Um, yeah, Eliza's done my, my son's charts, my, mm. like all that stuff. Yeah. Everyone I love has been there. Cause I, I buy them, you know, readings to go see Eliza. Yeah, that's fabulous. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in the past, you've, you know, we all know that you trained at Le Cordon Bleu. I'm wondering, what was your relationship to food and cooking as a child? And what was your first like, oh, I can cook moment or like, when did that fire start? I did not have a relationship with food when I was a kid. I grew up, I'm Gen X, I'm a latchkey kid. I grew up with the Hockey Night in Canada anthem, you know, and the the shake and bake chicken just bouncing in the plastic bag. That was like the rhythm of my nights around, you know, like it was not, 
yeah, it was, we had a lot of like everyone fend for yourself, um, uh, particularly when I was a teenager and stuff. Um, it was going to other people's homes <laughs> and like going to friends' homes. There was like one funny story when I was a kid, I was probably like 12 or 13. I was probably 13 because we were like riding bikes all over the neighborhood. And there's this great family, the Jakubowskis, Eastern European. Christine Jakubowski had like seven brothers and sisters and they their parents had these like thick accents. And I remember going over and, you know, my mom, was a working mom. She didn't get home until six o'clock. I had to, you know, and so like having a, a green salad with iceberg ready, lettuce ready for her and um, scrubbing potatoes and put them in the oven. That was like my job five nights a week, basically, <laughs> and shake and bake. But we went, I went over to the Jakubowskis for dinner one time and there was this um, amazing stew this like incredible, luscious, velvety with like carrots and like vegetables. I didn't know what they were. I look back now. It's like, that was a turnip, you know, <laughs> like never had a turnip in my life. Beautiful meats, just like absolutely coated with this long cooked sauce. And I said, what is this? And Mrs. Jasubowski said in her accent, oh, this is goulash. Mm. And I was like, no, it isn't. She was like, oh, what do you mean? I was like, no, goulash is when you, your mom puts a pound of ground beef in the pan and cooks it until all the fat comes out and then puts flour on it and salt and pepper and have like a cup of water. And then it's just like meat in its own gravy. And I remember Mrs. Jakubowski looking at me like, oh, you poor child. <laughs> like, and kind of being like, I remember her saying, and then you eat it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, with like a bun, like a hamburger bun or something. And she was like, oh, like no spice, literally just salt. Oh, wow. And like to this day, that's like a strangely like comforting mm -hmm. of the days when we were like pretty poor. My mom didn't know how to cook. It was like crappy, half a pound of ground beef, most of it fat. Mm -hmm. You just make a little roux, you put a ton of salt on it and you just stand there eating out of the... <laughs> Man, that was like actually pretty comforting. I was like, mmm, salty meat. So like, no, I did not grow up with a, like a food culture. It was, it was different when my grandma was around. My grandma used to make like special meals for special holidays. She was like a total glamour puss who was really into Christmas and like tinsel everywhere and just like really went over the top with like those like plastic brightly colored um, accordion style. Uh, yeah. Do you remember those plastic like garlands? Yep. She just had that shit all over the place. And so she would make crepe Suzette on um, Christmas day morning with like a ton of Grand Marnier, a ton of brandy and like 80 proof rum, just like wow. a huge thing of like, yeah, foolproof Bacardi set that aflame with her cans of mandarin orange. So it was like crepe Suzette with the mandarin orange cans. And it was so boozy. I just remember being like, <gasps> as a child trying to eat crepe Suzette, but she would like really go over the top for that kind of stuff. So I have like some food memories but it was like other people's houses mm -hmm. I'd go to like friends houses and they would have I don't know as I got older it was like their dinner parties and things like that and mm -hmm. I, but I never had a moment where I was like even in cooking school they do this thing in France which is like the most 
um, sophisticated and brutal form of public shaming you've ever seen, which is when you graduate from a program, they call you up to receive your diploma in the order of the worst marking class to the best marking class. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's like an absolutely just horrifying moment, like trying not to hear your name. Talk about a disorganized field. <laughs> you don't want to hear your name called because you want to. And I was third in my cohort, which is like, you know, very good. It was like a very good result for somebody who like literally couldn't cook a grilled cheese sandwich very well just years before, right? I graduated high school not knowing how to make you know grilled cheese sandwich. I don't know how to cook. So I've, I've, I, I still very much carry that um, legacy of like, I, yeah, I've never had an experience of like, look, I can cook. And I, 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 I'm just kind of always, um, I'm just very intuitive in the kitchen. Actually creating recipes was a, a, a huge learning curve for me of being more disciplined because I will look at recipes and then I just kind of do what I want. I like mm -hmm. read something and then I just create it and more or less it works out. Um, but I do, I, you know, people say it's good. People like it. People are like, mm, this is delicious. Or this is like the best art I've ever had. Or this is whatever. I've never had a dessert like that. But I'm kind of like, well, that's how the French do it. <laughs> you know, so yes, of course, this is going to be delicious. It's an amazing cut of prime rib. Like, I don't really think of it as like, oh, I had something to do with that. Mm. I'm just kind of like pulling the elements together and some like magical alchemy is happening. It's mm -hmm. kind of like, I didn't make the magic happen. I'm just like coordinating it. Um, so I, that's mm. not an experience I've ever had. Maybe, maybe I don't, I don't know if I'll ever have that. But maybe someday I'll be like, yeah, I can cook. I, I'm a good, I'm a good home cook. You know, I'll say that. I, I, yeah. I'm a good home cook, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we've heard a little bit about your ancestral relationships, about your more than human kin, your uh, background with food. Are there any other significant relationships or synchronicities that didn't make the book and that you really want to share? Well, yeah, you know, I was contracted to write 44,000 words and then I submitted 80,000 and they, they compromised at 65,000. <laughs> so yeah. there's a lot that didn't make it in. I would have, I, I was very much in relationship with, uh, with F. Marion McNeil, who, who is dead. She's a, um, Scottish historian and folklorist that uh, wrote this amazing four volume set called The Silver Bow, um, articling, detailing, archiving all of the festivals and customs of different areas of Scotland, and particularly because she was from the Highlands, from the Highlands and the Islands. And um, I think of her as like a milk line, like an ancestry um, that is not by blood, but is um, through her stories and, and, and I have so many of her books and was like, I basically just wanted to republish these books for the modern day. Like I was like, wow, I just want more F. Marion McNeil in the world. And I like, I'll pull in other things as well, but um, that really is who I was honoring. I just feel a very strong, almost like protective or like, I, it's like she was wrong somehow that she's not more well-known outside me. I don't know how well-known she is in Scotland. I'd love for Scottish people to tell me if they've like heard of her. Um, and same with Isabel F. Grant, but particularly F. Mary McNeil, who has written The Scots Kitchen. And she, she just, you know, was really 
um, holding on to the legacy of particularly of the Highlanders who were so badly shamed after losing the Battle of Culloden and whose cultural um, uh, anchors were like stripped of them mm. and, um, you know, created just a, a legacy of, of like a colonized mentality that, of course, led to um, adopting whiteness as an identity instead of having, you know, or, or primarily giving allegiance to whiteness rather than to their Scottish and Highlander heritage. And so I see F. Marion McNeil as somebody who was holding on to something that the Highlanders had stripped of them mm. or like beaten out of them and shamed out of. And she was holding on to the spirit of that. And, and I'm not sure who's carrying it forward. And I don't believe that I'm like the appropriate person to do it, but I'm like, well, I have an opportunity and this is what I, this is, this is what I want to carry forward. And again, it's like a little bit of a collapse skill to look at what are the things we should conserve that are going to be helpful moving forward. And cultural conservation is a big part of how, um, again, we maintain our humanity and the most beautiful parts of humanity, even through calamity. And so when I think of that teaching, like, okay, what are we going to conserve of culture that is going to, um, help us remember who we are, I look at F. Marion McNeil's body of work and was like, yeah, I need that. I want to repackage that for the modern day. And I want to enhance it with things that we know from a more um, intersectional perspective, from a decolonized perspective. I want us to be more inclusive. I want us to like lift up some of the realities of people who were not cis, white, able-bodied, you know, all of that stuff. Like I, I would like us to have a manner of approach that is um, uh, inspired by her, but not a, not a template necessarily, but mm -hmm. she definitely shows up a lot in the, the recipes and the rituals and the things that I've written and mostly on the cutting room floor now, but still there, still there. I find that. And now we know about stuff. her. Now we know about her. Everybody knows about Florence Mary McNeil. That's right. Wow. That's, that just sounds really rich and special. Thank you for sharing her with us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> when was the last time you ate something and it brought you to tears? You know, okay. It's very difficult for me to separate like the, the food from the atmosphere, the environment, the context or setting. The first thing that actually comes to mind is I think the last food story I heard was about like you and your family, your, your buns. <laughs> role so I want to hear I'm going to ask you to share that so uh, you can give the context of what that is but I cried uh learning about the roles um and that's kind of more my style is like I'll hear a story about food or I'll hear the story of how food was procured whether it's like a hunter or you know somebody growing something um you know, my pumpkin, I grew my pumpkin that made me cry a lot. So I kind of get very invested in the relationship mm -hmm. um, between a person and the food, less about the meal. Um, but I will say that like there was Can you hear me? I can. Okay. My garage band just like kicked into gear there. Okay. Right. There was a dinner, like a Christmas dinner in like maybe 2015 or 16, maybe 2016 or 17, uh, Christmas dinner, me, my son, um, my son's dad, Marco, 
my husband Ruben, my brother Dustin. It's candle lit, the garland is up, the tree has the candles lit on it. And I made a prime rib roast, which I often do. That's like our, that's our traditional uh, Christmas dinner with a um, really garlicky, uh, garlic and herb and mustard crust, which actually in the spirited kitchen, I have a, a ribeye roast, a prime rib roast. And, and so it's same kind of recipe, slightly different cut, but, but essentially the same, just without the bones. Anyway, so we had this prime rib. And it was one of those meals where it's like one of the guys is like, wow, God, this is the best prime rib I've ever had. Mm. And somebody else is like, God, yeah. You know, when it's like quiet and everybody's really thoughtful and then like the next guy, you know, maybe my brother's like, God, yeah, what did you do to this? This is so good. Is it okay? Like, and he's like, is this, is this rude? And he like stuck his finger in the gravy on his plate and like licked it. And then Ruben was like, God, yeah, this is so good. And I was like, well, you know, I got the meat from this butcher and I liked it and I took them through the whole process, but I just had a moment where everybody was eating and making those like vocable sounds of, mm, mm, oh God, you know, and they just like kept marveling at it. And I just, in the, in the, in the darkness, in the candlelight, I, I did get like choked up and like little tears being like, oh, look, I have this family and I've worked really hard to strengthen bonds and create conditions where we could sit at a table and just like really enjoy each other and feel really nourished by the food and by each other. And these have not been easy relationships, but look at us. So that happens to me around the holidays, you know, <laughs> that happens to me sometimes. I, I frequently have that feeling of look at us mm. around the table, not just with my family, with like, like I said, like when strangers would come, you know, we had like a kitchen Kaylee with my Gallic uh, singing teacher and she was in town. So I just like opened up the house. We're like, look, mm. we're going to have this long table. We have like a very small house. It's like a little cottage and it's, and so shoving 20 people around a table is like very difficult it's like let's try to do this in an eight foot span of space it's like very hot and sweaty in the ovens right there but there we were like eating our dessert drinking our whiskey singing these songs people were like pounding the table to the beat and I just had this kind of again like I'm at the I'm in the kitchen it's dark everybody illuminated at the other end and I was just like wow look at us just strangers coming together, singing, being in rhythm. It was really, really touching. So it wasn't necessarily the, the food, though that was another one where I made Kranikin. That's another, <laughs> I didn't mean to do this, but like the, that recipe is also in the Spirited Kitchen. Nice. And it's just kind of like an average, like, oh, this is like an interesting kind of, but nothing like that special. And yet, people were like, God, this is the best dessert. Like they were having some out of body or etheric ancestral experience being like, wow, I've never heard of Cranican. I'm even Scottish or whatever, you know, they're Canadian, but like, and, and I, it was just all of that together, you know, the dirty plates, the, 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 the whole, you know, trying to like quietly get the dishwasher filled while people are singing and stuff like it's that look at us. This is nice mm. feeling that I really, that brings me to tears pretty easily. Mm. Look at you. 
So I have just a couple other questions for you. Um, these are a little lighthearted and silly. Okay. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could only eat five food items for the rest of your life, what would they be? Oh, gosh. Well, the first one easily comes to mind. That's going to be a ribeye steak with campazola melted on top, campazola cheese. That's just like, that's my desert island. At my desert island, I would like thick ribeye <laughs> steaks, campazola cheese on top. I have to have mashed potatoes with like melted butter and a little carafe on the side. Uh, so if probably to make it healthier, if I'm only eating five things, I would, I would make that, um, cool cannon, which is like another, that all, I didn't mean to do this, but that also is in the spirited kitchen where it's like <laughs> mashed potatoes that are made with like milk and like, it's got like leeks and cabbage and then you pile it high and you make a little well inside and you literally just like pour more melted butter into oh. the well. Yeah. So that's my potato side <laughs> with a bit of coal and coal crop in there. Um, I need to have some chocolate and it's got to be milk chocolate because I'm not like Ponzi that way where it's going to be dark. <laughs> it's like, no, I want milk chocolate. It's got to be hazelnut. Mm. So chocolate covered hazelnuts milk chocolate covered that would be like a good snacking thing for me is that that's three my dessert oh actually that's um yeah I would probably have I have to have some kind of cake I think I would want oh man this is really hard I would either do Paris breast which is like a praline mousseline also shows up in the spirited kitchen that's the recipe that people are like what is this I'm like it's French it's not me it's just French it's classic um so it'd be that or it would be um like a just a really moist chocolate cake with a, a vanilla Swiss meringue buttercream skim not too thick it's something like that I need like a good substantial dessert I should probably have a vegetable um potatoes are a vegetable right they are a vegetable they are <laughs> but I feel like I should have something I should have something green I you know what I might just go with like uh green beans with like a hazelnut butter that also shows up in the kitchen it's so simple though but it and like I'd want a particular kind of bean like I like haricot vert I like mm -hmm. like a very small thin skinny French green bean is that five? That's that's yes. like a whole, that's a well-rounded meal. Those that are the is. things that I want to take <laughs> with me. I don't need water. I don't need any of those things. I just need steak and sides. Yes. I'm surprised <laughs> that nerds were not on this list. I just oh my gosh. knew. <laughs> I, you know what? I love nerds. I love nerds so much. I, should I eat them as one of my only five things for the rest of my life? Probably not. I'm, I'm trying to like... <laughs> stick with a real food group Fair if this if you had said like desert island you okay. know like you're going there and you have to take it like I'd be like well I'd take a palette of nerds and I, that <laughs> wouldn't take me that long um no I love nerds candy so much <laughs> so you just answered one of my uh, part of the last um quick fire questions I'll say okay. so your okay. favorite candy is nerds is that fair to say 100 yeah okay well okay. no okay this is also difficult. So sour keys that are a little bit stale. 
Oh. Yeah, because so I, like I don't. Little hardened. Yeah, I don't like them if they're like super soft and juicy. I like I want a slightly hardened, <laughs> slightly air cured, um, <laughs> sour keys. So that's a, that's a tough one. I would take. I would probably take either. You know what? Sour keys make me feel more full. So okay. I might. Uh, that might be my favorite candy. Okay. What about your favorite cheese? <sighs> Saint Andre. Mm. nice big thick soft triple cream kind of yeah saint andre do you have a favorite vegetable hmm you know i really enjoy a a garden fresh carrot carrots are really hard to grow actually they're really hard to grow so like well-grown carrots i just i love those I love those. I also, you know, I, I like broccoli. I, I, I don't know that I have a favorite vegetable. Green beans are going to be right up there. I'm always mm-hmm. going to choose that first. My family's going to be like, oh, green beans again. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a toss up between those two. Okay. What about a favorite fruit? Ooh, that's a, oh gosh I feel like I'm betraying the raspberries if I say peach I okay very specific it has to be like a well it has to be like a very deep flavored raspberry so we grow a lot of raspberries but I call them canning raspberries because they're like pretty tart and they're like high tone in their flavor profile I like some more base notes in my raspberry. I want mm-hmm. like a good deep raspberry. Um, but my other option would be like a really nice Okanagan peach. My husband's from the Okanagan and the peach is there, like absolutely the best in the world. And a, a warm peach that I, I enjoy. I enjoy a good peach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Me too. I also love beans. Do you, do you have a favorite bean? Ooh, okay. So if it's canned, cannellini. Cannellini all the way. I like a nice white bean. That's my favorite. But of course, the green bean. If I get if, like any kind of beans, I'm going to go green bean. But like if I'm like, I, I really want that that pulse that's going to like fill my belly. Um, yeah, it's cannellini beans. Because I like a nice cassoulet. Also featured in the Spirited Kitchen. What it It's almost like I created a cookbook of all my favorite foods. <laughs> that's great uh what about a favorite dessert yeah Paris Brest which is that French pastry that just like knocked my socks off when I went to France and I was like where have they been keeping this what it is absolutely ethereal why is this and it's because of course it's very labor intensive (laughs) so you have to have like really good time management skills but if you do if you can do it over a couple days this is why I put it in the spirited kitchen some people are going to be they want a challenge and it's like you want a challenge this is going to pay off this is going to be the most heavenly amazing and I'm going to tell you what Andrea this is me I'm going to talk trash about Instagram here for a second (laughs) no disrespect to all of the incredible pastry artists and patissiers out there in the world but there are two things about Paris Brest, which is made from shoe pastry. Mm-hmm. So it's shoe pastry, like well-known in long johns and cream puffs or whatever it is, you know, eclairs. When they put the craquelin on top, this is like a new thing where you put like butter, mm-hmm. like a butter sugar thing. And then it like creates this very smooth coating on your shoe pastry. And people have started using this in a Paris Brest. I have to tell you, Okay, trigger warning. It looks like you're eating a scab. 
I, there, I said it. I hate it. I cannot stand crackalin on choux pastry. Mm. Sorry, everyone. Now you're going to see it everywhere and you'll be like, ooh, sorry about that. No, old school, classic French patisserie. None of this modern bullshit that looks like I don't want to, I also don't want to eat two inches mm-hmm. of creme mousseline. Oh my gosh. This drives me bonkers when you see like really gorgeous cakes or really beautiful things. And you're like, have you tried eating that? Right. That is going to be a mouthful. It, it's not in balance. It's not in balance, my friends. I And I don't want to eat electric blue colors. I don't want to eat otherworldly neon pink colors. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Pastries are brown. <laughs> like, and the only color, like, no, don't stop doing weird things to food. I'm not on board. So... Mm. Anyway, Paris breast, but unadulterated and where the creme mousseline inside is in a very nice proportion with the choux pastry. Because mm-hmm. I would, I see these things on Instagram that look so beautiful and I'm like, automatic fail. Like I think <laughs> back of being in school and they would have been like, no, no, absolutely not. Yeah, no. I just really <laughs> love that you underscored that pastries are brown because <laughs> brown is one of my favorite colors so I love nourishing. soil and so yeah. it just like really warms my heart <laughs> they are aren't they they are just <laughs> it's like cakes they're just brown and just butter brown. colored or like a little bit of pastel but like yeah no mm. totally you know what we skipped over it that I want to go mm. back to do tell can you just like quickly share a little bit about your family's your family roll recipe oh Yes. Mm. So I call them milk line rolls, Mm. but the official term is grand's rolls. Mm. So these are my aunt's mother-in-law's rolls. And it was just about this time last year, I was coming to uh, a close of a chapter of my life. And these rolls just kind of like popped into my mind. I was like, who has Grand's Rolls recipe? So I started reaching out to multiple aunts and no one has it. So then we started like scouring internet recipes and Southern cooking cookbooks, trying to find anything that resembled her roll recipe. So I created a chart and I would write down all of the different ingredients and other people's recipes in this chart. And then my aunt Linda would say, well, no, she didn't have brown sugar. Yes, I think she did this. And we just kind of workshop this recipe. <laughs> and then I started having dreams about the rolls. <laughs> I, you know, I, I would do a test batch. Well, actually, let me backtrack. I would be in bed thinking about the rolls <laughs> and I couldn't sleep. So then I'd get up at like 11 p.m. on a Friday and I'd start making rolls. And I'd start crying as I'm kneading the dough. There is something so ancestral about Mm. kneading dough. Mm. 
And so I'd be kneading on my countertop and crying. And then I'd let the rolls rise overnight in the refrigerator. And then I'd take them out in the morning and let them come to room temperature. So hours and hours of <laughs> waiting. And then my sister would come by the next day to pick up a batch of the rolls and take to her grandmother's house. And, um, mm. Mm. as I was making these rolls, I remembered all of these women, not just Gran, not just my grandmother, not just my aunts, but these women who I grew up with in church. And they would look at you with these eyes, like, I see you, kiddo. Mm -hmm. You know, and they'd, Miss Jones would bake zucchini bread, mm -hmm. and then she gave me her recipe. You know, when my great aunt Frances made a sour cream cake and then she gave me her recipe and mm. I was like, wow, these roles are really carrying me. Mm. All of these women, most of them who have died, mm. were just carrying me through this really dark time in my life. Mm. And so then I kept making the rolls because I had to perfect the recipe. We, we needed to get it as close to Grand's as we could. Mm. And the highlight for me we hosted Thanksgiving. <laughs> in air quotes. In air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my nephew is pretty apathetic to you know, things that are not pizza or sushi. <laughs> So he's like, you know, turkey and all this. He didn't care about any of it, but he does love bread. So I had him help me out, you know, as much as I could. 11-year-old boy at the time. And I pulled them out of the oven nice and hot. I said, Ugo, come, come taste the rolls. You know, I slather butter after you take them out of the oven. The look on his face. Mm -hmm his eyes got so wide he was like oh my god <laughs> and i'm like i know right <laughs> it's like the best role you've ever had mm. the last time i saw him he brought up the rolls <laughs> yeah oh, that's so beautiful Andrea, thank you for sharing the story of your roles. This is a good lead-in to the last question on the Numinous podcast, which I would like to ask to you. So mm. how do you cope with grief and rage? Mm. I have learned in the past couple years that I really have to make time and space to metabolize my feelings. Mm. I cannot just keep going and be mm. mad or be sad or be griefy. So it might include making roles. Like mm. it, it's become very somatic for me. Um, I have found myself, I can't do this when I'm driving with my dog, Churro, <laughs> but um, I have found myself in my car driving to work, screaming at the top of my lungs mm. when I just am filled with rage, I just have to let it out. Mm. Um, and so that also means um, I had to start 
creating a space also to cry, to like schedule crying. Mm. I found myself about six months ago crying at really inopportune times, like at mm. work mm. or, you know, at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> so I started hosting a grief vigil. I call it candle hour. Mm. I've been hosting it on the new moon of every month. <sighs> It has just been such a salve mm. to say, yeah, I feel really shitty. In a couple more days, <laughs> I'm actually going to sit and listen to music. I'm going to light a candle and I'm just going to let it out. Mm. And, and the usually, music, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, usually it, it's like writing or scribbling. Mm. Um last night I actually hosted a candle hour with gospel music. Mm -hmm. That's what oh, I was going to say. It's yes. like the music has gotten very special there. Yes. Yes. So I found myself clapping and tapping my feet and, mm. you know, just really allowing the grief and the rage to move through my body and then outward, mm. just outward into the ether. Mm. I just can't hold on to it. So I really have to feel it, express it, release it. Thank you for, for providing that excellent example of like, feel it and deal it, kind of deal yeah. with it. Um, and also for holding that beautiful space. Mm. We need more of that in the world. So if it's okay. I'd like to link to that in the show notes or like By maybe to your newsletter or something like that. So people can keep track of like, what if they want to come and listen to gospel music for candle hour and mm -hmm. have that at the new moon for that salve. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Thank yes. you for taking charge of the podcast today. And thanks for sharing a little bit of yourself. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me, Carmen. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for sticking with us for this conversation among friends. I know it was a long one. I could go on and on about um, the book, but also Andrea asked good questions and I just loved our conversation. I didn't want it to end. Please follow Andrea on Instagram at... Andrea underscore with underscore heart. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes. So you can find out where, when uh, candle hour is happening again. And if you're in need of compassionate conversation, as you face experiences related to grief and death or dying, you can find her at Andrea Sexton Dumas.com. Again, you'll find those linked in the show notes at numinouspodcast.com. I'm so grateful to Andrea for agreeing to come on the show. Thank you for listening today, my friends. Uh, today, I'd like us to take some time to honor the women and girls of Iran fighting for autonomy. Please pressure your politicians to pay attention. It actually does matter, even if it's just like an online autofill, uh, you know, uh, petition letter or um, a, a stock email. It actually does matter that they hear their constituents um, saying what they care about. So if you're not sure what to do, there are links in this episode's show notes at numinouspodcast.com. Let your leaders know, let our leaders know that you support the revolution happening there. Finally, The Spirited Kitchen is available for pre-order online or from your local independent bookseller. Just ask them to bring it in. And then, no matter where you buy it, bring your receipt back to my website to receive your instant bonus downloads. Those are available till October 30th. Just go to the cookbook tab at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. 
Until next time, take care.